to the Catholic Center. Welcome to the Catholic Center. Well, hey, everybody, this is Father Brian. On today's episode, I sit down with Raina, and she is an incredible individual. Uh, she has a huge heart. Uh, we get into uh, giving and tithing and microfinancing through charitable organizations. Uh, and we also talk about her experience at the Catholic Center as well as her experience working with NASA in Houston. I think that you will enjoy this. So, You're working for NASA. Yeah, I was. <laughs> it's uh, it's very exciting. and um, But yeah, I did that for a year. And uh, you d- you and worked with through. NASA for a year. Yeah, it was fun. It, it was kind of um, it was weird timing. So I I've been at UGA for five years. Um, when I first came to UGA, I came to the Catholic Center, and um, I was kind of expecting there to be like a lot of students around, and there really wasn't other than at mass. Um, I came to the student room. I'm like. There's a bunch of old people here. Like, there are no students. And uh, I thought that was really weird. So I didn't come back, uh, except for Mass, every Sunday. I just kind of didn't hang out at the CC. And then until my third year of college, the spring semester, I uh, I was in a weird, weird place. And uh, I just kind of came one day to study before Mass. And I ran into Chandler and Paul and Kevin and Pippo in the student room. And they were really welcoming, uh, particularly Chandler, because we uh, had this comic connection of, like, living in Savannah. Oh, I was going to say bubbly personality, but... Very bubbly personality. (laughs) She was like, hi, welcome. (laughs) I'm like, hi, I don't know you, but you, like, are really happy. You're probably you the happiest person I've ever met in my you life. You grew up in Savannah. Yeah, I did. Hmm. Uh, and so she, I saw her sitting across the room, and she had this ring on. And this ring looked really similar to my class ring. And my class ring's very unique. It doesn't look like other schools from high school. And so I asked her, I was like, hey, did you go to St. Vincent's Academy? And she was like, no, my mom went to St. Vincent's Academy and I had my ring modeled after hers, which makes sense because hers was an emerald and the St. Vincent's rings is a sapphire. And so we just like had this instant connection. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. Like I've got a friend here, new. Anyways, and so then I came back the next day and Paul was like, hey, you came back. And I was like, yeah, I did. And then, you know, we just... I'll start hanging out, and it was fun. That was, so that was my entrance into the CC life. But that was spring 2019. And then that summer, I went back to Savannah, and Savannah or Chandler was in Savannah. We spent that summer together. And then that fall, I moved to Texas. And so I was gone for a year, and then I came back last August. So This past August? Yeah. Really? Yeah. So in that, that time, we had a new priest who had come and gone, Father Casey, you guys had gotten here. had no idea who you guys were. The priests I did know had all left. And um, even some of the people, like a lot of my peers, my engineering friends, they'd all graduated. 
but I was lucky because my CC friends were all a year behind me. Mm. And uh, so... Clever. So then the Catholic Center really became a much bigger part of, of my life because I had no friends other than the ones here. But it took a certain amount of courage for your own self to, a couple of years ago, to step in to a place that you're not uh, familiar with. Yeah, I think at that time, I was I was coming out of a, a serious relationship, felt pretty low, and I was taking a really hard semester, like a really hard. And so when you just get to that point where you're like, get broken down to your foundation... For me, my foundation is with the church. You know, when there's nothing left, you can go to the church and feel a little at home. Even when I first came to school and I was so homesick, I could come to the church and I could sit five rows back on the left side, and that's where my family always sat, at church. Whatever church we went to, any country, any state, even at home, five rows back on the left-hand side. And so there's a lot of comfort I get from the Catholic Church. And so, you know, two years ago when I was down to that foundation because school had beaten me down, personal relationships had beaten me down, uh, my best friend at the time, she was doing a co-op in New Jersey, so she wasn't even here. And I just felt compelled to come to the CC, and it totally changed my life because I met these amazing people. So, yeah. Then you went to Houston. Then I went to Houston, yeah. But it was enough. We had a really... That summer was really great because, like I said, Chandler and I were both in, in the city together. And then we had some friends who all came down to Savannah. Um, I don't know if you ever met, like, Kenny and Victor. Yeah, you know them? Okay, so, like, Kenny, Victor, Paul, Mariana, Sarah, they all... Uh, came to Savannah and they hung out with me and Chandler and Chandler's grandfather and it was it was just a really good time and a really a strong growth in those friendships and um so that was great because even when I went to Houston I still you know kept in contact with them and called back and FaceTimed and stuff so yeah. so yeah so then I went to Houston yeah and you worked with Ness in Houston what was that what was that like it was um a big learning curve uh, going out into the real world is a little scary. I had never lived outside of Georgia. Um, I've lived in Savannah, and I've lived in Athens, and that's it. Mm. And then I moved clear-cut half across this country. And in one of the biggest cities. To one of the biggest cities where I didn't know a single other human being. And um, my parents, I lived in a house with uh, five other girls. It was run by this Catholic couple who owned three houses, one for their family, one for female interns, one for male interns. And um, we had heard about them through some mutual friends. Um, so I'd never met, met the woman uh, and husband who like ran the house, but good reference. Anyway, so I was in this house with these random girls. Um, and my mom stayed with me for three days, and then she left. And I was like, okay, well, what do I know? I know I gotta go to church on Sunday, so let's find a church. And I found a few different parishes. Texas is a pretty Catholic place, not gonna lie. And uh, so that wasn't hard, so I found a parish. And then I found a grocery store. 
And then I went to work for the first time. And you just kind of take every day that simply. And you slowly get used to transitioning out of being a student to being an employee, to being a colleague, and to having those kinds of responsibilities. And get used to, like, voicing your opinion and actually having it matter on something. Um, One of my first projects had to do with uh, fixing a um, microchip in one of the exercising devices that they use on the International Space Station. I had absolutely no idea how to do that, but my mentor, he was really great, and he just, he was like, okay, work on this section of code. These are the resources you need to do. And I'm like, all right, I can actually do this. Like, I can figure this out. So you just start working. And then right before I came back, that microchip got flown to space and installed. So how cool is that, right? That's wild. Yeah, and, um, you know, that, I did that for the... orbiting the Earth. Exactly, at 16,000 miles per hour or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then that's what I did for the fall semester. And then in the spring semester, I moved to a different group, and I was designing a heart rate monitor to go inside the spacesuits while they train. So when they're training for their, um, what do you call them, spacewalks, they train in a pool, this really big pool that is 40 feet deep and like 100, or not 100, like 200 feet by 30 feet or something like that. It's really long and big. Anyways, and they have a mock-up of the ISS in it, and they train in there, and because it's water, you can't have any electrical components really in there, so they couldn't have a heart rate monitor, so my job was to, like, design that. And um, I got it through, like, phase one, and then when I came back to uh, Athens, my coworkers, they kind of kept me involved as... My plan went through testing and fabrication, and I think they're doing testing right now with the prototype. But So I did that for a semester, and then over the summer I moved to a different group, and I worked on um, designing a uh, like training facility for Mars exploration. So you do a lot of like uh, enclosing astronauts into a space similar to the size of their habitat and then you see if they go crazy and um, hope that they don't and you figure out what does work and what doesn't work like you know having the sink this many feet away from the workbench that doesn't work we need to do a better design on that and uh we do a lot of food testing also, you know, do they start stop eating the food because they don't like it? So we have to figure all these things out before we actually send a mission to Mars. So I was helping design that, and I was on the project management team. And that's where I'll be going back to um, when I get back next, or in July, actually. So not on that project, but same group, the project management group. Your participation in the colonization of Mars. I am, in some ways. Um, or I was. I'll be more participating in the colonization of the moon 
when I get back. So, so you're saying Yay. that astronauts who are currently walking in space, space walking, they're, they don't have a heart rate monitor right now. They do. They do up in space. They don't while they're training. So you're, you're creating the training version of the space walking yeah. heart, rate, heart rate monitor. Yeah. And the reason that you need it, like, in training is because, well, there's a lot of reasons. First, you can get a lot of information. Like, how difficult of a task are we trying to put them through? Because when you're doing a spacewalk, you can't eat. You get, like, two liters of water or less than that. Um, you can't go to the bathroom, really. You're in that suit for eight hours, and you're on pure O2, which is difficult for the human body. So it's very difficult. Imagine doing like high intense cardio for eight hours. It's, it's a lot to ask a human. And we don't, every time you have a new task, you don't know how difficult that task is really going to be on that person. So one of the... Uh, recently, we had to fix a uh, a solar array, and uh, they were training for it when I was there. I'm not sure if they've launched and, and fixed it yet, but um, they're tra- training to fix a solar array. And uh, sometimes the astronaut is, like, upside down almost, and that can be really bad in training because we do have gravity, and you're 40 feet underwater, and you're not supposed to be upside down for longer than this many seconds. But we don't have any technology in their suit right now to monitor how long they've been upside down, what their physiologic conditions are. And um, these are just things to keep them safer on Earth while we train for them to do less than safe things in space. Why is it a cardio level of heart rate when they're doing these tasks? Because uh, first the suit's... Uh, you, they're pressurized, so for, say, like, to move one thing, you have to use a certain amount of pressure, right? Okay. In a spacesuit, you have to use, like, ten times the amount of effort because it's, first of all, not very flexible, you don't have a whole lot of dexterity, and the suit itself is pressurized. It's pressurized to, like, we live at one atmosphere, I think it's pressurized to four atmospheres, which is, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of pressure to be under. And they, I mean, the astronauts go through training in uh, pressure chambers and um, high oxygen chambers, low oxygen chambers, things like that. So they go through a lot of training for that, but it doesn't exactly make it easy. It just makes it bearable. <laughs> so just gonna, that project was to help make them uh, a little bit safer. Then we were tying it into a helmet display so they could use eye tracking to pull up like schematics. So you're out there working on a solar array, you can use your eyes in your helmet to pull up a schematic that gets displayed in front of you and you're like, okay, this is what I need to do. And then you can like swipe to put uh, the schematic away or your instructions so that you don't have to you know, constantly be looking at your, your arm pad and um and yeah and uh and sometimes you know communications get blocked out and stuff like that so it's always good to have a backup plan Mm. (laughs) yeah 
it's always good to have your astronauts be autonomous and then have mission control be your backup because you never know what can happen. Yeah. What I heard recently is that uh, the technology in our cell phones is actually more advanced of a computer than we had in 1969 when we launched the uh, mission to the oh, moon. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Because, Te- and it's because of people like yourself who are you know, actively developing these things. Yeah, technology is uh, so advanced and it's so amazing. Um, space is actually a little bit far behind because when you think about it, okay, you have a piece of technology in the year 2020, okay? It gets approved to be in space, which means, like, it's not going to combust randomly in 20 different scenarios. It's not going to be hacked by foreign entities that may wish to hack the United States. It's not going to... It's, like, foolproof. It's gone through all the tests. Those testing take probably 10 years so now we're in 2030 on a piece of technology that was actually created in 2020 and then you have to train the astronauts to use it so that takes another like two years so that's 2032 and then you have to actually launch which could be up to 2033 so you're about 15 years behind on the technology which is why NASA works so hard to try and stay 15 years ahead but you know Everything's public, so somebody catches a hold of something and then you just run with it. But it's fun to be a part of it. It's fun to try and stay 15 years ahead. I like things like that. Mm. Yeah. That's awesome. It's fun. That's so cool. But yeah, so I did that. And then, um, and then you returned back here. You returned here and you're finishing your last year. Yep. Yeah. So let's see. I, uh, I did the. I'm a biomedical engineer, and um, I'm doing... There's a a lot of different engineers here that I actually have classes with, and uh, it's kind of fun. There weren't really any engineers when I first got to... uh, Like I said, there was nobody here when I first got to UGA. But um, even last year... At the Catholic Center. At the Catholic Center, I really only knew Thomas Dodd was the only other engineer here that I knew. And now I know, like, you know, so many MK and Emma and Ozzy and all of them. And you'd Sheila. recommend the engineering uh, department here at the school? Yeah, it's good. If there's one thing I've learned throughout all my experiences is that uh, it really doesn't matter where you get trained. It matters how hard of a worker you are. Um, when I was in high school, I did not want to come to UGA my heart was set on going to Georgia Tech. I mean, I did everything to get into that school. And then I got flat out denied. And I appealed that decision. And then they deferred me. And then they deferred me again. And then they waitlisted me. And at that point, I was like, okay, God obviously does not want me to go to Georgia Tech. If he did, he would have gotten me in by now. So I just sort of, I was like, I'll go to UGA. And then... I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll transfer to tech. Anyways, after my first year. But when I got here, I really liked UGA. And I realized that I really didn't want to feel like dying all the time. Because doing biomedical engineering at Georgia Tech, you'd probably feel like dying all the time. Because my sister was, at the time, doing just that. 
and um, so I, I stayed at UGA. And I think my career has been perfectly fine with that decision. <laughs> mm. Yeah, you seem to have everything lined up, too, which we'll is cool. See. But, I mean, you have some sort of initiative because, like you said, whenever you went to Houston and you found your resources, you found your church, you found your grocery store, and then you went to work, right? So, like, you had this, I guess, intuition uh, into how to keep your step, keep yourself standing up or thriving ultimately, but, like, just standing first things yeah. first. How do I stand? How do I have my weak stand? Yeah. When I was little well first thing you know is that my parents are super weird not gonna lie never met anybody like them but every night they would read us something and if it was my mom she read us the saint biographies and if it was my dad he would read us a chapter of whatever book he was reading so there was this one book called the cornerstones of success that i particularly remember i must have been like only seven or or eight years old I remember my dad sitting on our bed. It was a red book. And it was the cornerstones of success. And I remember him telling us that, like, this book is about business, but think about it with your own life. What are the cornerstones of your success? God, your family, and then for us, because I was seven years old, my education. So those were my cornerstones. And if I can, when everything, you know, goes down, if you have strong cornerstones, then you'll you'll be okay. You'll be able to bounce back no matter what. So, so yeah, I probably Resilience. get that from him. Yeah. yeah, from from having, they really emphasize having a good structure to your life because you never you know you never know what's gonna hit you. But if you just if you have your cornerstones, you can always rebuild. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, one of the things that we, we I found out with the uh, students at UGA um, in, in its relation to the food pantry downstairs is that uh, 25% of students here at UGA are technically food insecure. And so if something happens to them and they're failing, if their parents lose a job, or if they lose their job, or if someone dies in the family, uh, they get sick, etc., then their next meal is challenging to find and so that's that was our vision with our food pantry downstairs which is nice there's always something available at least uh but that kind of thing and so yeah so having some sort of resilience or um these cornerstones to be able to prop you up whenever the stuff of life comes which it kind of inevitably comes yeah and i think the where we are with the pandemic that's you see a lot of people who weren't ready for life to slide left because they didn't have something to ground them something to rebuild on you know when the pandemic hit even not being able to go to mass was really difficult but you remind yourself so when the pandemic hit i was in houston so i wasn't able to go to mass i couldn't go see my family and i went to off-site working so i was working from my uh my home so that was kind of stinky on all fronts but i uh but you the fundamentals of family is keeping in contact so you call 
and you video chat and everything. And the fundamentals of church is prayer. So you keep in communication with God. You pray a little bit more. Maybe I did, I started doing my rosary a little bit more and journaling a little bit more. And then with work, well, you just try to make the best of that one. You don't, don't get lazy. Some, you know, some interns just like, I have nothing to do. Find something to do. Bug your manager to let you do paperwork for them, even if, you know, it's nothing because at least you're, you're involved. Put out, put out the effort. So, but yeah, I think a lot of people during the pandemic didn't, um, didn't know what to do now. They didn't, they didn't have their cornerstones. But the Catholic Center is a good, good, good church, good parish to be a part of because I think when everything slides left, it'll always be here for you. Which is kind of ties into how I came here in the first place. <laughs> yeah, that's my goal as a uh, as someone who tries to cast vision of this place. Unfortunately, Father Fred and I were very similar in this: is that we try to make it a refuge or a rock for people to stumble upon, stumble to, um, and have a safe space so that whatever it is in life that is uh, kind of tossing you around, like being tossed in waves, that you can come here and, and not have judgment, um, not be judged, and to be able to kind of find your grounding. Yeah. I think uh, the CC has evolved so much because, like I said, I remember the first time I came here and I poked in and it was so quiet and there were no lights on and I was like, there's no one here. <laughs> there's Because my sisters, they all went to Georgia Tech, so their Catholic Center is far more evolved than where we were five years ago. And... Um, and so they told me, like, first thing you do, like, go to your CC. That's, that's, that's where you'll find friends because that's where they found friends. And I was like, okay. So I was really sh- shy, and I wandered in, and there was no one there. And I was like, well, this doesn't look like a good beginning. <laughs> this does not bode well at all for me. But um, I, uh, you know, stumbled my way through three years. But then the next time I came into this building I uh I remember it was warm and it was brighter and there were people kind of wandering around the um the office rooms and Paul was cleaning the floors at that point and I heard laughter coming out of the the student room it was so much more alive and I was like oh interesting well we'll see how this goes God wants me here I feel compelled to be here so we're just gonna see how this works out. There are very stark moments where I'm very much, uh, we'll see where this takes me, and just ride the wave. Stumble, St- yeah. <laughs> ride the wave. Sometimes stumble, much more often. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. <laughs> well, I, so changing gears, one yeah. of the things that uh, I I talked about recently is tithing and giving. And so my approach to tithing and giving is something that's, I try to make it um, kind of integrated, well-rounded, and holistic in the sense of like, this shouldn't be something that is awful 
for people <laughs> in terms of church, in terms of Christianity, in terms of discipleship. Like our money is valuable to us. We have a lot of power with it. Uh, and we can also be, um, we can empower others and we can also be kind of controlled by it ourselves. And so how is there, is there a healthy way when it comes to money? And uh, one of the things that I proposed was, this was at Mass, was to uh, give to something that you're interested in, something that you're passionate about, and to have it become a part of you, and you become a part of it. So you become a part of the story of, of uh, an organization that is taking care of foster children or that is assisting with halfway homes or um, that is trying to bring about uh, safe houses or uh, yeah, community homes for those suffering domestic violence or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what you do is like whenever you become, whenever you give to it, whenever you tithe to something like this, which is kind of an inherent part of Christianity is that we were kind of geared, we're trying to gear everyone towards generosity and giving and, and handing oneself over. Whenever we do that to a particular charity or an organization, then that story, that operation becomes a part of us. Uh, in a very real way, it's like a spirituality in a sense where we are now walking with a community or walking with other people who are doing this work in a professional manner. Uh, and then we, in a very real way, are a part of it, a part of that story, a part of that organization and helping it achieve the um, achievements and the goals that it sets out, sets out to do. And so I gave this homily and I come out and I run into you <laughs> and you said, you know, I do this all the time, and and I'm fascinated by I was fascinated by that because uh, that's not something that uh, I don't know. I've, I guess I I mentioned how for myself it's difficult to give, it's difficult to hand over, it's difficult to surrender finances and money. I like in, I like investing. I like um, you know seeing my my own money make my make more money, um, and then I'm also not giving a ton of money, and so like there's this tension there. But one of the things that you said is how um, kind of more natural it is for you to do this because you were raised in a, in a home that does this often or you were raised with that mentality of giving and, and uh, being a resource to other people. Uh, so if you want to talk about that, that, that yeah. I thought that was fascinating because you're, um, I think that it's a different perspective than I've encountered just kind of naturally. Well... Uh, you already, I'm smiling so much because I love this topic because it's so fun. I think that's what I said to you. I came up, I was like, Father Brian, what do you mean? Like you struggle with this charity is so fun. Yeah. And, um, which is not what you usually hear. Yeah. Not what I usually hear. It's not what you usually <laughs> hear, but, um, yeah, I did, I did grow up in a home that kind of emphasized it, but Let's start at the beginning because it'll make a lot more sense. My parents, they emphasized stewardship. So that's your time, talent, and treasure. And they did it in a lot of different ways because um, particularly time and talent because that's what my sisters and I could give. We, My mom would take us to the Social Apostolate, which is kind of the Catholic homeless shelter run by... Um, Sister Pauline, or at the time it was Sister Pauline, 
and we would stack canned goods on a Saturday. No 10-year-old really wants to do that, but we did it, and that was sort of time and talent. And then we altar served, and that's time and talent. And my older sisters who were in high school, they lectured, and that's time and talent. So they really emphasized time and talent, time and talent. And then there came treasure. And treasure was a lot more fun because my parents had these amazing stories about the charities that they would give to. So every Christmas, we would, my dad had a list think quite literally a list of these different charities that they like to give to and some of them were like there's an orphanage in El Salvador that my dad went to work work with when he was in medical school and he still gives to that orphanage and he just has a very personal connection with the orphans there that are now probably 25 30 years old and um the priest that runs that orphanage and then they have um my parents are big on orphanages uh so there's like an orphanage in guatemala and um so we don't have orphanages here in the united states to my understanding we have fosters we have a foster right, care but system that's the same, the, yeah. so i've been to orphanages elsewhere and it is how you would imagine it where you have a whole bunch of kids running around and you have to somehow foster some sort of development and education. And it's a big task. Yeah. And so, you know, it's... There are organizations that if you wanted to do international relief in that way, you could. But the foster care system needs as much help as uh, most orphanages abroad. So you can, you know, do plenty domestically. And, um, but... Another thing that really hit me profoundly when I was a kid were the, I told you my mom read the Saint biographies to me and my sisters. And I remember thinking like how amazing it is that God chose this person, an ordinary person to um, this level of holiness where they even sometimes could perform a miracle. You know, you hear about the miracles through the saints' intercessions. I'm like, how awesome is it that an ordinary person could be chosen to change a life uh, through God's intervention? But when you think about it, charity is sort of like that. You're an ordinary person, and you've been called by God to change a life through stewardship, through giving your time, your talent, your treasure, and once that clicked, I was like, this is the coolest thing you can do. The coolest thing you can do is to change a life. And I can do that. And I started doing that personally in seventh grade with um, the Kiva microloans that I told you about. What so is it called? Kiva, Kiva. microloans. How do you spell that? K-I-V-A. So if you you know want to go, it's kiva.org. And um, I'm not sure how my dad found out about it, but he was the first one who gave me a $25 gift card to this microloan institution. And the way it works is you go in and you can give a loan minimum $25 and you can choose a person who's applied for the loan. So I chose the Philippines and it was um, a woman in a rice field. It was so that she could buy a new seed for her rice field. 
and she had four children and she wanted to put her children through school and she needed this money to have a larger crop to make more money so that she could pay back the loan and send her kids to school. And in seventh grade, I won the science fair for my region and I had money for the first time because I didn't babysit, I didn't have a job, I didn't get an allowance, and so I had money. And I was like, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm going to put some of it in savings and then I put $150 into Kiva. And with $150, you can give six loans. So to me, I changed six lives. I helped send six families worth of kids food or to school that year. And education's everything. Education is what raises people out of poverty. Because, so, how amazing. I was only 13, and to me, I almost performed six miracles. It's kind of a, a simplistic way of looking at things, but I was 13, so, you know. But that's what charity is. You're, you're touching people's lives through love. It's a, it's a calling. It's a calling from God to be like him, which is what we're all called to do, you know. And even, you know, like you said, there are a bunch of different ways to do it. Here we had the um, homeless people's drive and, you know, we gave blankets and uh, warm items because we were just going into winter. And we had a cold winter this year. We probably saved a life. Someone probably would have died of hypothermia without that. You saved a life. And you think about, you know, Jesus in the gospel. He saved a life with the leper. You know, his way was a bit more grandiose because he's God. And, um, but we're all called to be like that. In our limited mortal way, we are all called to be charitable, to love, to change lives. So that's what charity is, to me, at least. That's why I love it. And I think it's so fun. And when you find the charities that you love the most, that's even more fun because you really get to be involved. Well, that's awesome because usually you don't, usually you have a personal connection. So like I'm helping this person out and I'm watching them buy something. Or you have like a macro organization that, probably is doing the work, but you don't get to see the work. And so here's this really interesting kind of middle ground where there's this personal aspect. You don't meet them personally, but you but you see their application for something. And then it's also uh, take, like it's also across the world. It's also international or uh, in a place where you would never get to yourself. Yeah. 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 It, and, the, and the word is is subsidiarity, right? So it's uh, this is part of our Catholic social teaching. Subsidiarity is is like doing the most amount of work on the local level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like somehow you getting what's in your pocket to the person on the on the local level, uh, so that they can actually take care of their needs that they have. Yeah. Right. Rather than uh, I don't know you funding an organization, then that organization 
they either know what their needs are, these individuals, because they've talked to them and listened to them, or perhaps they're like, all right, we're just going to send everyone blankets. But yeah. they don't know that those blankets are not what they need and that it's not, you know, it's summertime in, in this yeah. part of the world. Yeah. It's not wintertime. And, yeah. uh, so subsidiar- subsidiarity is in, uh, a part of our Catholic social teaching. Uh, and it's smart. It's smart giving, which is what you're talking about in this Kiva. Is it's yeah. like smart um, microfinancing, microloans. Yeah, because it is exactly what they need. And... There's a uh, organization whose name escapes me right now, but they certify charities and they basically assess how much goes to overhead and how much actually goes to the cause and which sections of subsections of the cause and stuff like that. Um, and it's really important to, I think, pay attention to those things because overhead, yeah, it's important. The organization wouldn't work like that, but you personally, if you really want to get involved in charity, you've got to start with something that's uh, 100% basically going to the cause so that you can feel that, you know. Impact. Impact, yeah. You get that little smile. You didn't, you know, pay for someone's lunch. Mm -hmm. You, like, someone in America's corporate lunch, you you know, paid for a students who that's what, otherwise yeah. would have been hungry, their lunch. And that's why mission trips or immersion trips are, uh, in a sense, important because it, it gives you the maximum amount of exposure. Uh, and then you're able to step back and say, all right, well, like, I can't actually take care of their needs. Yeah. But is there anyone who is on the ground that I can help support who's you know, they may have some administration costs, but you know that those costs are actually being efficient. Oh, yeah. Mission trips are so impactful. And I would recommend to anybody, if you get the chance, to go on a mission trip, go on a mission trip. I grew up fairly affluent. You know, my dad was a doctor, and I was lucky in that way. But my parents really emphasized putting my sisters and I in the presence of the poor. Probably because my mom grew up in India and my dad definitely grew up below the poverty line in Augusta. And so they, you know, they realized that, you know, we've done well for ourselves, but don't lose sight of the rest of the world. So the first time I went on a mission trip was um, sixth grade. Or fifth grade. Wow. Uh, yeah. My dad went to the Philippines on a surgical mission trip. And he brought me and uh, my older sister and my mom. My oldest sister and my mom. And uh, it was my first time really being in the presence of the poor. Um, because you see, first of all, these crazy medical anomalies that you just don't see in the United States because people say we have bad, bad health care. <laughs> Go to a third world country, you'll see what bad health care is. Uh, there, there's, you know, there's this boy who had a tumor that had grown through his sinus cavity and he'd gone blind in his left eye because he had this tumor taking up half his face. And um, he was my age. He was like 10 years old, and it was so crazy to be so humbling 
to be in the presence of the poor because, you know, if I had a headache and my parents had an inclination to think I had a tumor, I would have had it taken out immediately, no matter what. And um, there was this particular baby who had a cleft, cleft lip. You don't see it as common in the United States, but it's basically a... Um, uh, you don't have your entire lip together in one space. So you can see basically from their gum up to your the bottom of your nostrils, there's like a gap in your face. Okay, it's very common in uh, other countries. And um, we did a lot of cleft palate surgeries, but I took care of that baby and I just grew really attached to that child. And um, so mission trips kind of, yeah, they're... They're very good at putting things in perspective because it's very easy to get focused on what's right in front of you. you know, even for me, you know, school's the most important thing. You know, gotta do well in school or your friends or or something like that. And uh, it's it's easy to to lose sight of things. So mission trips are are amazing. And um, well, those are medical mission trips. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool. There's another one. I didn't go on this one, but um, my parents, the only mission trips I've been on are, are both medical mission trips, but and they were both to the Philippines. My dad had a thing for the Philippines. He just liked going back there. Um, but there was another one that my parents went on to Uganda, and they were just assessing the hospital to see if they were even able to bring a mission trip there. And they couldn't because they didn't have stable electricity. But my parents sat down. They just, they saw the need, the overwhelming need. And they felt compelled to help this particular hospital, which had a, uh, an orphanage uh, attached to it because so many mothers died in child labor or in childbirth that they had an orphan. They needed an orphanage. So they sat down with the nuns who ran the orphanage in the hospital, and uh, they said, what, what do you need? Like, come to us, tell us what you need. And some people were like, oh, well, we need food to feed the kids, and we need clothes to do this, and we need, um, like, something to run labs on, like blood labs for the hospital, and we need textbooks for the school. That also was a part of this. And then the most senior of the nuns, she stood up and she said, we need electricity. We need reliable electricity. And my parents were like, all right, we're going to get you electricity. And from when they came back to the United States, they started this mission to put in a reliable solar powered electrical system into this hospital you would not imagine the red tape that was there. The, you know, my parents were, you had to, it was incredible the amount of red tape. But the point of the story is that these mission trips, they show you what the real need is. And then you can't forget that when you come back to the States, you still have to, you know, remember what was shown to you and hold on to that calling because it's really easy to feel 
called and compelled when you're in the country, when you see it face to face, it's a lot easier to forget it when you come back. So I think that's another really important part of, of tithing is, is remembering the call. And for like at the church, um, I always like the churches that give you the, the videos about like what they do with your money because then you get to see it and you remember. So you're impacting the world. Trying to. Not not while, me so much. While you're sitting in this chair, you are <laughs> impacting the world. You still give to Kiva. You still I do. I don't actively put money in. I, so I looked it up after that conversation. Uh, I have actively only put in two hundred dollars of my own money. I have given two thousand fifty dollars of loans. Because the way it works is, you know, I give out twenty five to somebody, they eventually repay me twenty five, and then I give out twenty five to another person, and they eventually. So, um, you know, I made two thousand dollars out of two hundred, which is. And how many years have you been doing it? Since seventh grade, so that's five and four and two. Eleven. So eleven, yeah, eleven years. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's it's really fun. I I like looking at the portfolio because I've given to like fifty six different countries and um, like I give mostly to women because uh, if you give money to women, it's more likely to end up feeding children or paying tuition or something. If you give it to men, may end up in alcohol or something like that. So. I just prefer to prefer to give give to women. Maybe I'm biased because I am a woman. But they have to go through some sort of screening process in order to with Kiva. Yeah, they do. Um, I think you have to go through the screening process. Actually, I don't think I know they go through the screening process of seeing like how good was your crop last year. You know how. Uh, do you have outstanding debts or are you kind of the average in debt person? Um, and so they do that. And then each country itself has a scoring, a delinquency rate, basically. Delinquency not meaning like criminal, but delinquency as in not reliable to pay back your loan. So I try... There's a lot of countries that you can give to that don't have high delinquency rates. Uh, unfortunately, like India, where my mom is, has a very high delinquency rate, so I don't really give often to, uh, to, to loans coming from India, but um, there are ways to make sure that you give your loan to the highest probability of a positive outcome, basically. So, and Kiva does that. It's a very, it's a very good organization. You, it, they tell a good story. You know, you really feel like you understand what this person, this person's about. And, uh, and so it's fun. It is a lot, a lot of fun. <laughs> but, That's yeah. cool. Charity is fun. So the word charity means, cari- is comes from the Latin word caritas. Mm-hmm. And the Latin word caritas comes from 
the word love. And so if God is love, God is caritas. Um, and that's what charity is. So whenever you participate in charity, you are doing something godly. Yeah. You are participating in caritas, which could very well be like an energy or it's a generosity. It's a self-giving. It's a handing over and a palm opening, uh, which is interestingly and provocative. It's, it's godly. Yeah, it's a... It's a feeling, once you get really into it, into charity, it touches a different part of your spirituality. There's, there's a feeling of, I'm doing the right thing. There's so many times, maybe, maybe this is just me, but there's a lot of times where I'm like, I hope I'm doing the right thing. I hope that this degree is the path that God wants me on. I hope that this parish is even the one that God wants me to be a part of. I hope this person is the one that God wants me to date. I don't know. There's a lot of hoping because does anybody really know God's will? I don't. But when you give to charity, you know. You know with certainty you are doing something that God smiles on. That just kind of makes me smile. Because, like, it feels good. It feels good to know that you're doing something God wants. So it's all about perspective. Instagram at Catholic Dogs. See you at Mass.